Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Sorry, this episode might sound a bit differently because I'm recording from a hotel in Belgrade, Serbia. Well, just arrived, basically. I wanted to do this second episode on my Balkan adventures as the last one this month because, well, as I come home soon enough, then uh, we'll be doing some more political stuff there. And before I go, I really wanted to give you some nice look at other things that I've learned while I'm here. First of all, I want to give you a retelling of a truly awesome experience that I had thanks to the awesome people from the Red Africa who got me here. Again, I'm massively thankful because one of the things that they offer, and it's, you know me, usually everything is tied to today's story in a way or another. And the fact that they uh, host this wonderful event called um, Dining with Tito, where there is a hunting lodge and a restaurant in Sarajevo where uh, Tito used to have meetings with his uh, hunting buddies. He was an avid hunter himself. And apparently he's also hunted with Haile Selassie of Ethiopia and hunted some antelopes. And there are, like, trophies of, well, various animals that Tito had, like, shot himself. And he would uh, sit there with his colleagues and maybe friends or something, and they would have some meals, and they would drink Shiva's regal. And it was awesome. And during the whole experience, you're being told about Tito and what's going on and get to experience just some really wonderful food in a, in a place which is just so rich and full with history. Oh, and, and they, at the same time, they also just play Tito's favorite song. And it was like truly awesome. And Tito is important to all of this story because in a way, Tito represents pan-Slavism. In a way, after all, he unified the Southern Slavs. The history of Panslavism always comes into play whenever we speak about, for starters, Russia. Because, as you may remember from the beginning of World War One, Russia always had this idea, even though it was rejected by the southern Slavs at the time for a bit, but Russia insisted, and through various periods in history and various processes, we have seen that this Russian idea of Panslavism, and being the great protector of all the Slavic peoples, hasn't 
kind of gone away. In fact, it's gotten stronger in the past few years, especially if you, well, look at the annexation of Crimea from that perspective, then you can, well, see this called protection of the Russian-speaking peoples, or, well, in general, Slavs, as um, something that matters for Russia. For that matter, that is why I wanted to mention Tito, because, you know, he united these southern Slavs, and that was his part of the whole Yugoslavia project, was to unite them and, and make this experience happen. The issue here is that I want to kind of figure out how similar are the Yugoslavs and Eastern Slavs, which would be Belarusians and, and Russians. Now, I can't really speak about the Czechs and the Poles, the Western Slavs, because, well, I've only been there once in each country, and that was a long time ago, so can't really speak about their culture except from what I've heard on the internet. But there is a quite clear an interesting comparison between the Russians and, well, the people here. Even though the people here are, again, very complex and, in many ways, extremely different. However, there are some certain similarities, as, well, obviously they did live in a single country, and there are some interesting coincidences and similarities with the Yugoslavs and the Russians. So let's delve into this subject and let's try to give this whole Tito thing a bit of a context here. Now, Tito and all of his issues and problems obviously will get their own episode, but you have to start with him if you want to talk about unifying the Slavic people. See, the first thing that characterizes the way how Tito actually managed to unite this very diverse region that have been like fighting each other all over the place for thousands of years is the fact that kind of the means of attaining these ultimate communist goals must be dictated by the conditions of that particular country rather than by a pattern set in another country, which is very distinct from Joseph Stalin's socialism as one country theory, as Tito advocated cooperation between the nations through this non-aligned movement, while at the same time pursuing socialism in whatever ways best suited particular nations. On the other hand, if you look at it, socialism in one country, which Stalin opposed, focused on fast industrialization and modernization in order to compete with the West, you know, produce more steel than the US, and sometimes they did. Which means that even though in Stalin's era, but after they, they kind of came closer with the Soviet Union, but while in Stalin's era... You can explain this, that Stalin demanded that all socialist countries should follow the same model and the Soviet Union should take the lead. And as it happened, most socialist countries were, well, in the Eastern Bloc, then uh, they're also kind of mostly Slavic countries. On the other hand, Tito's approach was the thing that allowed him to basically hold Yugoslavia together in this kind of very diverse and complex space that we mentioned in the previous show, while still pushing on for the socialism. He used this socialism ideology, but applied it differently in each of the federated countries of Yugoslavia, sort of, at least that was the theory there, and that's how it worked. Because this meant that he didn't have to um, force everyone here in Yugoslavia at that time to follow the same pattern, Tito recognized political differences and cultural differences between these countries, while Stalin, well, frankly, couldn't really care about it. And if you look at the situation as it is today, then you can see that if Putin, for example, looks through some sort of um, unifying Russian movement, that would basically uh, mean that he is 
the sole protector of all people who speak Russian right now, which is sort of, in a way, pan-Slavic. I'm sure that you know that he has a lot of interest in, in Serbia and in Balkan region in general, because he considers all of these nations still to be their very brotherly nations. Then you still have to note that um, Putin, in a way, is no Tito. He could be compared to Stalin, however, because I believe that Putin does not seek to incorporate in his kind of web of alliances all the other nations in such a way that would respect their own cultural distinctions and differences. He would rather see all the Slavs follow kind of Russia's model of government and Russia's model of, I would say, economical development, I, I presume, economic policy, but seeing as, well, um, haven't really been experiencing much of anything that you could probably call an economic policy for Russia, then um, that could probably lead to a bit of a disaster. But that's like all the politics stuff, okay? Why is this important? This is important because if you look, for example, at the language, on the linguistical level. Sure, the Serbo-Croatian, or their language, as they call it here, because all the Balkan nations are multicultural, and there are many ethnic groups living here. Like, Bosnia is full with Bosniaks and Serbs and, and Croatians, right? So, the polite way how they talk to each other is not to say that, well, this is Serbian, or this is Croatian, or this is Bosnian, it's always our language. Or, when I speak to those people, it's polite for me to say your language. However, this language is, well, as a native Russian speaker, well, close to native, I can state that it's barely 50% understandable to me. I mean, it sounds like you'll read some words, and it just feels that they have just taken out some vowels from them. And they write in both the Latin script and Kirillitsa script often. I thought that was a thing in Bosnia, but no, even Serbia, in a lot of places still, many of the writings are in Latin script. Secondly, about the openness of the culture. The Russians themselves are, well, they're kind, nice people for the most part, but they're still, at least from what I have seen, kind of colder. They won't protest a lot, they'll endure, they're uh, focused on this endurance thing, while here people are, as they're more southern, way more open, way more straightforward, very excitable about things. When they have something to have like fun about, they will truly enjoy themselves a lot. While in Russia, well, unless you get like in a massive party among people that you know, I don't really believe such open expressions would be commonplace. And that also kind of follows all the food part, because Russian food consists of, well, one of the most famous foods is the thing that also is very popular in Latvia, is the shuba, pickled herring with beet and eggs and a lot of mayo. It's a salad, and you kind of put it in layers. Meanwhile, I believe that quite a few people here would find it, um, well, either they haven't heard about it, or I do believe that they would probably not enjoy it as much, definitely. And food is extremely important here. If you've maybe seen the skit about... I forgot the names of those comedians, but about Chevapi and Kebapi, a thing, because it's uh, very close to the same food, but I better post this before I just go away, because otherwise they'll send death squads after me. Because this Chevapi thing, which is basically... You take a pita bread, and then you basically make some little sort of 
ground meat sausages with various spices in them and and the sausages differ they can also like be square or whatever you put them in but literally everyone states that their chwapi is the best chwapi thank you thank you the red africa i've tried a lot of them and i will not say where this food was the best because uh i still want to go home in one piece you know Hey guys, Annette here. Thanks for tuning in to our special Balkans episodes of the Eastern Border made possible by the Red Africa Travel Organization. Red Africa offered to you what they call a concierge experience. They guide you in your discovery of a country and help you see it through local eyes. As you can tell from Kristaps experience, Red Africa is truly the way to go beyond the ordinary and see beyond the average of any country. Ready to take part in the adventure? Visit redafrica-travel.com to find out more. redafrica-travel.com. The best way to discover countries on the eastern border. This podcast brought to you by russianvoiceovers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. so far i've been mostly talking about happy stuff you know food and such but one other thing is kind of an attitude to life and death here every literal country in yugoslavia i just call it yugoslavia to denote the whole region because albanians are their own thing totally and uh well they're not slavs in a way and i don't know how to say about them so i really can't use the term Balkans, because Greeks are also not Slavs, and they're in the Balkans too, so that's why I'm just using Yugoslavia here as a geographical description, and because I'm using a lot of comparisons from Tito era, so that's that's the thing. But if you look at it, then um, the main difference is kind of serious in the sense that through every monument dedicated to some sacrifice or terrible thing or something, well, horrendous that has happened... In World War Two, or afterwards, every memorial to various genocides, murders, massacres, explosions, everything. If you look at it, sure, some of them are just not fixed, but still, in their original form, they have been created as some sort of celebration of life. One thing that I've noticed here is that people don't dwell on death. I Like I said, it, it was about this one monument that I mentioned in the last episode, but people here are... Truly, they've seen so much suffering and pain that they would rather have the good things in life. But 
if you well compare and contrast this idea. For example, every monument to Tito's partisans basically looks like something that reminds you of a breakthrough. And they have a whole museum dedicated to how they blew up a bridge in one operation and how fought against uh, the fascists and uh, then escaped, how they basically brought all their forces out of a breakthrough which led them to victory. And their monuments represent that. And everything here, all of this is kind of out of respect for the people's lives instead of, you know, their deaths. They don't want to constantly be reminded about how everything is terrible, even when there's some some real terrible stuff that has happened. Like, uh, visited the museum and the memorial site of the Srebnitska, I hope I pronounced it correctly, massacre from the 94 war. And even then, um, I spoke with a person there, I'm going to be using this in future episodes, about how it was like there and everything. And even then, in a such a depressing place, he managed to keep up this optimism thing, and he didn't look like he was completely overwhelmed with everything. He at least tried to put up a, a good face of this, and everything that they have from their past, which is definitely tragic here, it's a um, marvel to look at how they still remained as composured and uh, enjoying life, because they truly do know how to do that over here, and how they celebrate the parts of the culture that they can, which are not tragic. Meanwhile, you have to compare and contrast this to Russia, where their Victory Day celebrations have turned into some weird, weird event where you can buy, basically, boxes of chocolates with the George's thing on it, and the companies would just create calendars with child soldiers, bloody child soldiers, victory-themed so that you could put it on the wall. And I mean, it's okay, but like, well, portraying bloody child soldiers on your wall calendar as something to be proud about and happy about, that seems a bit weird to me. And then there's this weird tradition for World War II veterans and stuff that involves this immoral march where people who originally started out as like a nice idea where people would just gather together and take the photos of their relatives and uh, carry them along a route and the procession would probably be led by an Orthodox priest, which already is an interesting thing because of the very fact that what we see on, in Russia is this mixing of orthodoxy and Stalinism and Putin together in one. That alone is a bit bit creepy, but hey, what can you do? Then they managed to take this idea to the absurd, and this year, for example, on the 9th of May, they uh, uploaded a bunch of pictures of, of people who had fallen into the war, put it in the USB stick, and sent it out to the space station. What's the point of that? I really don't know. And now, often the government would pay people to just carry random images, which are then, you know, sent in by people, and just people who are not even related to them. It's turned from some sort of a memorial thing and some sort of remembrance to a situation where it's the classical or we can repeat this philosophy, which is very aggressive and uh, I don't admire it at all. <laughs> and people play pranks on it because, again, this year, they, when they did send the thing to the space station and when people had to walk around it, one of the pranksters, what he did was he took a kind of a famous picture of Hitler and photoshopped out the mustache, gave him a fake name, totally fake invented, and just, you know, wrote basically what Hitler did in World War II, where he traveled and where, imagining Hitler as a common soldier, obviously, but it all ends with uh, our hero's tragic death in 1945, you know just in the, the very close to the whole German surrender thing. What started out as a thing, then it turns into this kind of, in a way, a death cult up there. 
I don't know, because if you look at this and you then compare it to what I said before about how both of these countries try to build socialism and one of them was, you have to do it this way with forced industrialization and everything. And Tito, well, uh, of course he wasn't perfect and I'm no fan of socialism. Not one bit, really. But at least being in this region, I can understand why the people here often have a lot of nostalgia for Tito and uh, his regime, because in general, yeah, he was definitely way better than Stalin, and he did a lot more to basically ensure peace, and, well, all these monuments that Tito put up for partisans and that were put up in his era and later, they're supposed to remind you not of the war, but of the progress made since the war, of the progress of the good stuff. Meanwhile, in up there in Russia, you can like see a much more kind of a usage in propaganda where all this past is done to basically, instead of reminding you the lives of the people who actually fought there, to basically glorify the government and make sure that you want to join the army so that you too can gloriously die for the government. I think that Tito was more interested in making sure his country was prosperous, even though he spent a lot on the military, rather than uh, any weird super glorification of everything that happened. Well, that's just my opinion here, and I, like I said, I am not an expert on Tito, but this comes from my impressions and kind of comparisons between, for example, both of these attitudes towards life and death, in a way. And that kind of makes you think about how close all of this is to Russia. I mean, these people would feel weird there, I suppose. I think that Russians are way colder people, even though they're very friendly and nice, but it's kind of this attitude, and and you might say that it's a weird nurture thing, but where you grow up and how, how every part of this affects you, because Russia has been an empire and a massive state. Meanwhile, here, also Slavic people have been living under various other empires. And at one point in time, they looked for the Soviet Union as their protector and kind of guardian, in a way, and Russian Empire before that. But in retrospect, as soon as they can, I don't know if that's kind of a natural thing here, or is that just out of pure rationality, but as soon as they could, they kind of moved away and did their own thing, and tried to get as much autonomy as they can, where in Russia you can think about, you know, trying to grab more land for yourself and well, look, just look at Putin and Crimea. Here, a lot of people have this attitude that they'd rather, you know, build up their own stuff and not mess in others. And that's a totally, totally different attitude, totally different mindset, even though that is rather a comparison between an imperial and non-imperial thinking. At the same time, there, of course, are elements here who would rather see greater uh, insert Balkan country here, maybe without Montenegro and uh, maybe without Macedonia, but... Literally, I think that every other country has radical elements in it here that would see greater whatever. But that's definitely not what the most people think, at least in my opinion, because, again, the Balkans are a really friendly, really full-culture place, and one thing that is truly common between them here and uh, us up there, when I say us, I mean the Russians, and, well, you can kind of add people from the Baltics in there as well, because... We, we all still share this uh, same Soviet heritage, after all, is this attitude that you can turn anything into a joke. 
anything. All the time, people are um, making fun about terrible dark subjects and denigrating themselves a bit because, yeah, it's a way how you kind of don't lose your sanity after all the tragic happens. The question is, what comes after that? What decisions do you make? Even though there's a lot of issues, I believe that, well, in this case, uh, we up there have a lot to learn from the Balkan people because they're kind of keeping their optimism up. However, obviously there are issues here as well, and sometimes there's this um, spite thing going on. If the Soviets up there are sneakier, I would say, and people here do it for spite, because um, one of the more interesting stories I heard was how Austro-Hungarians built their city hall in Sarajevo, they wanted to do everything by the book. So what they did was they had to purchase all the land from all the houses that were in the spot where they wanted to build their grand city hall, and there was a guy who really didn't want to build his house at all. So they managed to persuade him finally, after promising him a lot of money for it, but he agreed only on the occasion that they would literally take his house and brick by brick and rebuild it, like move it across the river, because uh, the city hall in Sarajevo is on the coast there, and you can still see the house from the city hall. And apparently, while he was moving the house brick by brick, you know, all these Austro-Hungarian soldiers moving everything brick by brick, yeah, he just basically sat and looked at them and just <laughs> was just screaming insults at them all the time. This um, spite thing, at least in Bosnia, very popular. Pretty sure it exists uh, in some form or another in other Baltic countries, but I'm sorry, other Balkan countries. Well, it's late here and I'm recording this episode and even I made the mistake. And I'm from the Baltics and I'm in the Balkans at this point. Yeah, this probably denotes that this episode is going to be a bit shorter than the others. As if I'm starting to make such mistakes, then probably for me it's time to go to sleep. But we'll return to all this mess. But when I started to, to think about this episode, I wanted to do something about how these differences exist and, well, how this region is different from Russian regions and then Panslavism comes into action. But then there is like this totally weird branched out thing that you understand. There's so much in common people in the Balkans have with the Russians. It's like they're second cousins, but second cousins in such a way that one of them always dresses up for winter and is ready to be gloomy and endure everything, but the other is kind of a bit warmer, just as sad inside, but will never show it to you, and very excitable. And, well, (laughs) of course there are similarities, but if you look at it, then I honestly don't think that there's enough of them for any justification of Putin trying to take over this region. Because if he will, oh boy. Well, then then you will have taken over this region. And I'm sorry, Mr. Putin, but you are no Joseph Broz Tito. For all of his faults, he really kept the thing going, and he really kept everyone together. And of course, there are people here who hate him a lot, who just really kind of hate him for also the bad things that he did. But in general, yeah, I can understand why they have a positive attitude towards him. And I will have to make an episode just about him and his partisans. I will have to make an episode about him and Stalin's split, and I'll have to really figure out how everything of this will turn out in the end, because I have so much material on all this situation. I hope that I've given you the insight of how Yugoslavs differ from Russians. Sorry for this being a bit shorter, but like I said, it's a bit late, and I have a busy day tomorrow, and I really want to sleep a bit due to all the travels. But we'll make it happen, and it's going to be great. And uh, 
yeah, you're getting another episode as soon as I return. That's going to be about political stuff and really important political stuff. Some of it's happening in the Balkans here as well. And up until then, I highly recommend that you come and visit yourself and experience this strange yet oddly charming place with great food. Except, please, please, if you're from outside of here, when someone asks you which chivapi is better, you don't answer. Just nod your head and say, hmm, yeah, this one's pretty good, or something like that. It's a, it's a very valuable advice from personal experience. <laughs> but yeah, I hope you enjoyed this uh, special episode, even though it was a bit shorter than usual. See you from when I'll be back in Latvia. And then, then we're going to do Belarus and Azerbaijan and uh, other quite nasty things that require covering. I sincerely apologize for <laughs> for mixing up Baltics and Balkans. That happens when you're really tired and you make episodes. Did the best for it, anyways. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. 